Section 10 of Woman in the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Woman in the Nineteenth Century and Kindred Papers Relating to the Sphere, Condition, and Duties of Woman by Margaret Fuller. Section 10 Woman in the Nineteenth Century, Part Eight. Many women have observed that the time drew nigh for a better care of the sex, and have thrown out hints that may be useful. Among these may be mentioned Miss Edgeworth, who, although restrained by the habits of her age and country, and belonging more to the eighteenth than the nineteenth century, has done excellently as far as she goes. She had a horror of sentimentalism, and of the love of notoriety, and saw how likely women, in the early stages of culture, were to aim at these. Therefore she bent her efforts to recommending domestic life. But the methods she recommends are such as will fit a character for any position to which it may be called. She taught a contempt of falsehood, no less in its most graceful than in its meanest apparitions, the cultivation of a clear independent judgment and adherence to its dictates, habits of various and liberal study and employment, and a capacity for friendship. Her standard of character is the same for both sexes—truth, honour, enlightened benevolence, and aspiration after knowledge. Of poetry she knows nothing, and her religion consists in honour and loyalty to obligations once assumed, in short in the great idea of duty which holds us upright. Her whole tendency is practical. Mrs. Jameson is a sentimentalist, and therefore suits us ill in some respects, but she is full of talent, has a just and refined perception of the beautiful, and a genuine courage when she finds it necessary. She does not appear to have thought out thoroughly the subject on which we are engaged, and her opinions, expressed as opinions, are sometimes inconsistent with one another. But from the refined perception of character, admirable suggestions are given in her women of Shakespeare, and loves of the poets. But that for which I most respect her is the decision with which she speaks on a subject which refined women are usually afraid to approach, for fear of the insult and scurril jest they may encounter, but on which she neither can nor will restrain the indignation of a full heart. I refer to the degradation of a large portion of women into the sold and polluted slaves of men, and the daring with which the legislator and man of the world lifts his head beneath the heavens and says, This must be, it cannot be helped, it is a necessary accompaniment of civilization. So speaks the citizen. Man born of woman, the father of daughters, declares that he will and must buy the comforts and commercial advantages of his London, Vienna, Paris, New York, by conniving at the moral death the damnation, so far as the action of society can ensure it, of thousands of women for each splendid metropolis. O oh, men, I speak not to you. It is true that your wickedness, for you must not deny that at least nine thousand out of the ten fall through the vanity you have systematically flattered, or the promises you have treacherously broken. Yes, it is true that your wickedness is its own punishment. Your forms degraded and your eyes clouded by secret sin, natural harmony broken and fineness of perception destroyed in your mental and bodily organization, God and love shut out from your hearts by the foul visitants you have permitted there, incapable of pure marriage, 
incapable of pure parentage, incapable of worship. O oh, wretched men! Your sin is its own punishment. You have lost the world in losing yourselves. Who ruins another has admitted the worm to the root of his own tree, and the fuller ye fill the cup of evil, the deeper must be your own bitter draught. But I speak not to you. You need to teach and warn one another, and more than one voice rises in earnestness. And all that women say to the heart that has once chosen the evil path is considered prudery, or ignorance, or perhaps a feebleness of nature which exempts from similar temptations. But to you, women, American women, a few words may not be addressed in vain. One here and there may listen. You know how it was in the Oriental clime. One man, if wealth permitted, had several wives and many handmaidens. The chastity and equality of genuine marriage, with the thousand decencies that flow from its communion, the precious virtues that gradually may be matured within its enclosure, were unknown. But this man did not wrong according to his light. What he did he might publish to God and man. It was not a wicked secret that hid in vile lurking-places and dens, like the banquets of beasts of prey. Those women were not lost, not polluted in their own eyes, nor those of others. If they were not in a state of knowledge and virtue, they were at least in one of comparative innocence. You know how it was with the natives of this continent. A chief had many wives, whom he maintained and who did his household work. Those women were but servants, still they enjoyed the respect of others and their own. They lived together in peace. They knew that a sin against what was in their nation esteemed virtue would be as strictly punished in man as in woman. Now pass to the countries where marriage is between one and one. I will not speak of the pagan nations, but come to those which own the Christian rule. We all know what that enjoins. There is a standard to appeal to. See now not the mass of the people, for we all know that it is a proverb and a bitter jest to speak of the downtrodden millions. We know that down to our own time a principle never had so fair a chance to pervade the mass of the people, but that we must solicit its illustration from select examples. Take the paladin, take the poet. Did they believe purity more impossible to man than to woman? Did they wish woman to believe that man was less amenable to higher motives, that pure aspirations would not guard him against bad passions, that honourable employments and temperate habits would not keep him free from slavery to the body? Oh, no! Love was to them a part of heaven, and they could not even wish to receive its happiness unless assured of being worthy of it. Its highest happiness to them was that it made them wish to be worthy. They courted probation. They wished not the title of knight till the banner had been upheld in the heats of battle amid the rout of cowards. I ask of you, young girls, I do not mean you whose heart is that of an old coxcomb, though your looks have not yet lost their sunny tinge not of you whose whole character is tainted with vanity, inherited or taught, who have early learned the love of coquettish excitement, and whose eyes rove restlessly in search of a conquest or a bow, you who are ashamed not to be seen by others the mark of the most contemptuous flattery or injurious desire. To such I do not speak. But to thee, maiden, who if not so fair art yet of that unpolluted nature which Milton saw when he dreamed of Comus and the Paradise, Thou, child of an unprofaned wedlock, brought up amid the teachings of the woods and fields, kept fancy-free by useful employment and a free flight into the heaven of thought, loving to please only those whom thou wouldst not be ashamed to love, I ask of thee, 
whose cheek has not forgotten its blush, nor thy heart its lark-like hopes. If he whom thou mayest hope the Father will send thee, as the companion of life's toils and joys, is not to thy thought pure? Is not manliness to thy thought purity, not lawlessness? Can his lips speak falsely? Can he do in secret what he could not avow to the mother that bore him? O oh, say, dost thou not look for a heart free, open as thine own, all whose thoughts may be avowed, incapable of wronging the innocent, or still further degrading the fallen? A man, in short, in whom brute nature is entirely subject to the better impulses of his self. Yes, it was thus that thou didst hope, for I have many, many times seen the image of a future life, of a destined spouse, painted on the tablets of a virgin heart. It might be that she was not true to these hopes. She was taken into what is called the world, froth and scum as it mostly is on the social cauldron. There she saw a fair woman carried in the waltz close to the heart of a being who appeared to her a satyr. Being warned by a male friend that he was in fact of that class, and not fit for such familiar nearness to a chaste being, the advised replied that women should know nothing about such things. She saw one fair given in wedlock to a man of the same class. Papa and Mamma said that all men were faulty at some time in their lives, they had a great many temptations. Frederick would be so happy at home, he would not want to do wrong. She turned to the married women. They, oh, tenfold horror, laughed at her supposing men were like women. Sometimes, I say, she was not true, and either sadly accommodated herself to woman's lot, or acquired a taste for satyr society, like some of the nymphs and all the bacchanals of old. But to those who could not and would not accept a mess of pottage or a Circe cup in lieu of their birthright, and to these others who have yet their choice to make, I say courage. I have some words of cheer for you. A man, himself of unbroken purity, reported to me the words of a foreign artist, that the world would never be better till men subjected themselves to the same laws they had imposed on women. That artist, he added, was true to the thought. The same was true of Canova, the same of Beethoven. Like each other demigod, they kept themselves free from stain and Michelangelo, looking over here from the loneliness of his century, might meet some eyes that need not shun his glance. In private life, I am assured by men who are not so sustained and occupied by the worship of pure beauty, that a similar consecration is possible, is practised, that many men feel that no temptation can be too strong for the will of man, if he invokes the aid of the spirit instead of seeking extenuation from the brute alliances of his nature. In short, what the child fancies is really true, though almost the whole world declares it a lie. Man is a child of God, and if he seeks his guidance to keep the heart with diligence, it will be so given that all the issues of life may be pure. Life will then be a temple. The temple round spread green the pleasant ground, the fair colonnade be of pure marble pillars made, strong to sustain the roof, time and tempest proof yet amidst which the lightest breeze can play as it please. The audience-hall be free to all, who revere the power worshed appear. Sole guide of youth, unswerving truth, in the inmost shrine stands the image divine. Only seen by those whose deeds have worthy been, priest-like clean. Those who initiated are, declare, as the hours usher in varying hopes and powers, it changes its face, it changes its age, now a young, beaming grace, now Nestorian sage. 
But to the pure in heart this shape of primal art, in age is fair, in youth seems wise beyond compare, above surprise. What it teaches native seems, its new lore are ancient dreams. Incense rises from the ground, music flows around, firm rest the feet below, clear gaze the eyes above, when truth to point the way through life assumes the wand of love. But if she cast aside the robe of green, winter's silver sheen, white, pure as light, makes gentle shroud as worthy weed as bridal robe had been. We are now in a transition state, and but few steps have yet been taken. From polygamy, Europe passed to the marriage to convenance. This was scarcely an improvement. An attempt was then made to substitute genuine marriage, the mutual choice of souls inducing a permanent union, as yet baffled on every side by the haste, the ignorance, or the impurity of man. Where man assumes a high principle to which he is not yet ripened, it will happen for a long time that the few will be nobler than before, the many worse. Thus now. In the country of Sydney and Milton, the metropolis is a den of wickedness and a sty of sensuality. In the country of Lady Russell, the custom of English peeresses, of selling their daughters to the highest bidder, is made the theme and jest of fashionable novels by unthinking children, who would stare at the idea of sending them to a Turkish slave-dealer, though the circumstances of the bargain are there less degrading, as the will and thoughts of the person sold are not so degraded by it, and it is not done in defiance of acknowledged law of right in the land and the age. I must here add that I do not believe there ever was put upon record more deprivation of man and more despicable frivolity of thought and aim in woman than in the novels which purport to give the picture of English fashionable life, which are read with such favour in our drawing-rooms, and give the tone to the manners of some circles. Compared with the cold, hard-hearted folly there described, crime is hopeful, for it at least shows some power remaining in the mental constitution. To return. Attention has been awakened among men to the stains of celibacy and the profanations of marriage. They begin to write about it and lecture about it. It is the tendency now to endeavour to help the erring by showing them the physical law. This is wise and excellent, but forget not the better half. Cold bathing and exercise will not suffice to keep a life pure without an inward baptism and noble exhilarating employment for the thoughts and the passions. Early marriages are desirable, but if—and the world is now so out of joint that there are a hundred thousand chances to one against it—a man does not early or at all find the person to whom he can be united in the marriage of souls, will you give him in the marriage to convenance? Or if not married can you find no way for him to lead a virtuous and happy life? Think of it well, ye who think yourselves better than pagans, for many of them knew this sure way. To you, women of America, it is more especially my business to address myself on this subject, and my advice may be classed under three heads. Clear your souls from the taint of vanity. Do not rejoice in conquests, either that your power to allure may be seen by other women, or for the pleasure of rousing passionate feelings that gratify your love of excitement. It must happen, no doubt, that frank and generous women will excite love that they do not reciprocate, but in nine cases out of ten the woman has, half-consciously, done much to excite. In this case she shall not be held guiltless, either as to the unhappiness or injury of the lover. 
pure love inspired by a worthy object must ennoble and bless, whether mutual or not. But that which is excited by coquettish attraction of any grade of refinement must cause bitterness and doubt, as to the reality of human goodness, so soon as the flush of passion is over. And that you may avoid all taste for these false pleasures, steep the soul in one pure love, and it will last thee long. The love of truth, the love of excellence, whether you clothe them in the person of a special object or not, will have power to save you from following Duessa, and lead you in the green glades where Una's feet have trod. It was on this one subject that a venerable champion of good, the last representative of the spirit which sanctified the revolution, and gave our country such a sunlight of hope in the eyes of the nations, the same who lately, in Boston, offered anew to the young men the pledge taken by the young men of his day, offered also his counsel on being addressed by the principal of a girls' school thus. REPLY OF MR. ADAMS Mr. Adams was so deeply affected by the address of Miss Foster as to be for some time inaudible. When heard he spoke as follows. This is the first instance in which a lady has thus addressed me personally, and I trust that all the ladies present will be able sufficiently to enter into my feelings to know that I am more affected by this honour than by any other I could have received. You have been pleased, madam, to allude to the character of my father, and the history of my family, and their services to the country. It is indeed true that, from the existence of the Republic as an independent nation, my father and myself have been in the public service of the country, almost without interruption. I came into the world as a person having personal responsibilities, with the Declaration of Independence, which constituted us a nation. I was a child at that time, and had then perhaps the greatest of blessings that can be bestowed on man, a mother who was anxious and capable to form her children to be what they ought to be. From that mother I derived whatever instruction, religious especially and moral, has pervaded a long life. I will not say perfectly, and as it ought to be, but I will say because it is justice only to the memory of her whom I revere, that if in the course of my life there has been any imperfection or deviation from what she taught me, the fault is mine and not hers. With such a mother, and such other relations with the sex of sister, wife, and daughter, it has been the perpetual instruction of my life to love and revere the female sex. And in order to carry that sentiment of love and reverence to its highest degree of perfection, I know of nothing that exists in human society better adapted to produce that result than institutions of the character that I now have the honour to address. I have been taught, as I have said, through the course of my life to love and to revere the female sex, but I have been taught also and that lesson has perhaps impressed itself on my mind even more strongly it may be than the other, I have been taught not to flatter them. It is not unusual in the intercourse of man with the other sex, and especially for young men, to think that the way to win the hearts of ladies is by flattery. To love and to revere the sex is what I think the duty of man, but not to flatter them. And this I would say to the young ladies here, and if they and others present will allow me, with all the authority which nearly fourscore years may have with those who have not yet attained one score, I would say to them what I have no doubt they say to themselves, and are taught here, not to take the flattery of men as proof of perfection. I am now, however, I fear, assuming too much of a character that does not exactly belong to me. I therefore conclude by assuring you, madam, that your reception of me has affected me, as you perceive, more than I can express in words.' 
and that I shall offer my best prayers till my latest hour to the Creator of us all, that this institution especially, and all others of a similar kind, designed to form the female mind to wisdom and virtue, may prosper to the end of time. It will be interesting to add here the character of Mr. Adams' mother, as drawn by her husband, the first John Adams, in a family letter written just before his death. I have reserved for the last the life of Lady Russell. This I have not yet read, because I read it more than forty years ago. On this hangs a tale which you ought to know and communicate it to your children. I bought the life and letters of Lady Russell in the year 1775, and sent it to your grandmother, with an express intent and desire that she should consider it a mirror in which to contemplate herself. For at that time I thought it extremely probable, from the daring and dangerous career I was determined to run, that she would one day find herself in the situation of Lady Russell, her husband without a head. This lady was more beautiful than Lady Russell, had a brighter genius and more information, a more refined taste, and at least her equal in the virtues of the heart, equal fortitude and firmness of character, equal resignation to the will of heaven, equal in all the virtues and graces of the Christian life. Like Lady Russell, she never, by word or look, discouraged me from running all hazards for the salvation of my country's liberties. She was willing to share with me, and that her children should share with us both, in all the dangerous consequences we had to hazard. Will a woman who loves flattery or an aimless excitement, who wastes the flower of her mind on transitory sentiments, ever be loved with a love like that, when fifty years' trial have entitled to the privileges of the golden marriage? Such was the love of the iron-handed warrior for her, not his handmaid, but his helpmeet. Whom God loves, to him gives he such a wife. I find the whole of what I want in this relation, in the two epithets by which Milton makes Adam address his wife. In the intercourse of every day he begins, Daughter of God and man, accomplished Eve. In a moment of stronger feeling, Daughter of God and man, immortal Eve. What majesty in the cadence of that line! What dignity! What reverence in the attitude both of giver and receiver! The woman who permits in her life the alloy of vanity, the woman who lives upon flattery, coarse or fine, shall never be thus addressed. She is not immortal so far as her will is concerned, and every woman who does so creates miasma, whose spread is indefinite. The hand which casts into the waters of life a stone of offence knows not how far the circles thus caused may spread their agitations. A little while since I was at one of the most fashionable places of public resort. I saw there many women, dressed without regard to the season or the demands of the place, in apery, or as it looked, in mockery of European fashions. I saw their eyes restlessly courting attention. I saw the way in which it was paid, the style of devotion, almost an open sneer, which it pleased those ladies to receive from men whose expression marked their own low position in the moral and intellectual world. Those women went to their pillows with their heads full of folly, their hearts of jealousy or gratified vanity. Those men with the low opinion they already entertained of woman confirmed. These were American ladies. That is, they were of that class who have wealth and leisure to make full use of the day, and confer benefits on others. They were of that class whom the possession of external advantages makes a pernicious example to many, if these advantages be misused. Soon after I met a circle of women, 
stamped by society as among the most degraded of their sex. How, it was asked of them, did you come here? For by the society that I saw in the former place they were shut up in a prison. The causes were not difficult to trace. Love of dress, love of flattery, love of excitement. They had not dresses like the other ladies, so they stole them. They could not pay for flattery by distinctions, and the dower of a worldly marriage, so they paid by the profanation of their persons. In excitement more and more madly sought from day to day, they drowned the voice of conscience. Now I ask you, my sisters, if the women at the fashionable house be not answerable for those women being in the prison. As to position in the world of souls, we may suppose the women of the prison stood fairest, both because they had misused less light, and because loneliness and sorrow had brought some of them to feel the need of better life, nearer truth and good. This was no merit in them, being an effect of circumstance, but it was hopeful. But you, my friends, and some of you I have already met, consecrate yourselves without waiting for reproof, in free love and unbroken energy, to win and to diffuse a better life. Offer beauty, talents, riches on the altar. Thus shall you keep spotless your own hearts, and be visibly or invisibly the angel to others. I would urge upon those women who have not yet considered this subject to do so. Do not forget the unfortunates who dare not cross your guarded way. If it do not suit you to act with those who have organized measures of reform, then hold not yourself excused from acting in private. Seek out these degraded women, give them tender sympathy, counsel, employment. Take the place of mothers, such as might have saved them originally. If you can do little for those already under the ban of the world, and the best-considered efforts have often failed, from a want of strength in those unhappy ones to bear up against the sting of shame and the prejudices of the world, which makes them seek oblivion again in their old excitements, you will at least leave a sense of love and justice in their hearts, that will prevent their becoming utterly embittered and corrupt. And you may learn the means of prevention for those yet uninjured. These will be found in a diffusion of mental culture, simple tastes, best taught by your example, a genuine self-respect, and above all what the influence of man tends to hide from woman, the love and fear of a divine, in preference to a human tribunal. But suppose you save many who would have lost their bodily innocence, for as to mental the loss of that is incalculably more general. Through mere vanity and folly, there still remain many, the prey and spoil of the brute passions of man, for the stories frequent in our newspapers outshame antiquity, and vie with the horrors of war. As to this, it must be considered that, as the vanity and proneness to seduction of the imprisoned women represented a general degradation in their sex, so do these acts a still more general and worse in the male. Where so many are weak, it is natural there should be many lost. Where legislators admit that ten thousand prostitutes are a fair proportion to one city, and husbands tell their wives that it is folly to expect chastity from men, it is inevitable that there should be many monsters of vice. I must in this place mention with respect and gratitude the conduct of Mrs. Child in the case of Amelia Norman. The action and speech of this lady was of straightforward nobleness, undeterred by custom or cavil from duty towards an injured sister. She showed the case and the arguments the counsel against the prisoner had the assurance to use in their true light to the public. She put the case on the only ground of religion and equity. 
she was successful in arresting the attention of many who had before shrugged their shoulders, and let sin pass as necessarily a part of the company of men. They begin to ask whether virtue is not possible, perhaps necessary to man as well as to woman. They begin to fear that the perdition of a woman must involve that of a man. This is a crisis. The results of this case will be important. In this connection I must mention Eugene Sue, the French novelist, several of whose works have been lately translated among us, as having the true spirit of reform as to women. Like every other French writer, he is still tainted with the transmissions of the old regime. Still falsehood may be permitted for the sake of advancing truth, evil as the way to good. Even George Sand, who would trample on every graceful decorum and every human law for the sake of a sincere life, does not see that she violates it by making her heroines able to tell falsehoods in a good cause. These French writers need ever to be confronted by the clear perception of the English and German mind that the only good man, consequently the only good reformer, is he who bases good on good alone, and owes to virtue every triumph that he knows. Still Sue has the heart of a reformer, and especially towards women. He sees what they need and what causes are injuring them. From the histories of Fleur de Marie and La Louve, from the lovely and independent character of Rigolette, from the distortion given to Matilda's mind, by the present views of marriage, and from the truly noble and immortal character of the humpbacked sempstress in The Wandering Jew, may be gathered much that shall elucidate doubt and direct inquiry on this subject. In reform, as in philosophy, the French are the interpreters to the civilized world. Their own attainments are not great, but they make clear the post, and break down barriers to the future. Observe that the good man of Sue is as pure as Sir Charles Grandison. Apropos to Sir Charles, women are accustomed to be told by men that the reform is to come from them. You, say the men, must frown upon vice, you must decline the attentions of the corrupt, you must not submit to the will of your husband when it seems to you unworthy, but give the laws in marriage, and redeem it from its present sensual and mental pollutions. This seems to us hard. Men have indeed been for more than a hundred years rating women for countenancing vice. But at the same time they have carefully hid from them its nature, so that the preference often shown by women for bad men arises rather from a confused idea that they are bold and adventurous, acquainted with regions which women are forbidden to explore, and the curiosity that ensues, than a corrupt heart in the woman. As to marriage, it has been inculcated on women for centuries that men have not only stronger passions than they, but of a sort that it would be shameful for them to share or even understand, that therefore they must confide in their husbands, that is, submit implicitly to their will, that the least appearance of coldness or withdrawal from whatever cause in the wife is wicked, because liable to turn her husband's thoughts to illicit indulgence, for a man is so constituted that he must indulge his passions or die. Accordingly, a great part of women look upon men as a kind of wild beasts. But suppose they are all like that. The unmarried are assured by the married that, if they knew men as they do, that is, by being married to them, they would not expect continence or self-government from them. I might accumulate illustrations on this theme, drawn from acquaintance with the histories of women, which would startle and grieve all thinking men. But I forbear. Let Sir Charles Grandison preach to his own sex, or if none there be who feel himself able to speak with authority from a life unspotted in will or deed, 
let those who are convinced of the practicability and need of a pure life, as the foreign artist was, advise the others, and warn them by their own example, if need be. The following passage from a female writer on female affairs expresses a prevalent way of thinking on this subject. It may be that a young woman, exempt from all motives of vanity, determines to take for a husband a man who does not inspire her with a very decided inclination. Imperious circumstances, the evident interest of her family, or the danger of suffering celibacy may explain such a resolution. If, however, she were to endeavour to surmount a personal repugnance, we should look upon this as injudicious. Such a rebellion of nature marks the limit that the influence of parents or the self-sacrifice of the young girl should never pass. We shall be told that this repugnance is an affair of the imagination. It may be so, but imagination is a power which it is temerity to brave, and its antipathy is more difficult to conquer than its preference. Among ourselves, the exhibition of such a repugnance from a woman who had been given in marriage, by advice of friends, was treated by an eminent physician as sufficient proof of insanity. If he had said sufficient cause for it, he would have been nearer right. End of section 10